Um, okay, well, thanks everyone for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I want to kind of do three perhaps slightly unusual things with my presentation today. Um, I want to talk about why, first of all, I worked with the peace community of San Jose de Partado uh, doing the research that I did. Uh, then I want to talk a bit about the research, and then I want to talk about why I made the film uh, as a complement to the um, research that I was doing. And I want to do these three things because I think the concept of positive peace uh, is something that I engage with um, in very different ways in these three areas. So first of all, the peace community of San Jose de Partado is one of the most emblematic communities of victims of the Colombian armed conflict. Over 52 years of war, over 8 million victims, and this community has been very renowned for very tragic reasons because of all of the patterns of victimization in the Colombian conflict, they have really suffered every single type of victimization from extreme massacres, selective assassinations, political persecution, recurrent and repetitive forced displacement, torture, etc., etc. But they're not only renowned for the tragedy, but also because they pioneered a concept of neutrality, which um, was a declaration that they made in 1997 as a way to try to stay neutral to the armed conflict and thereby protect the civilian population in the midst of the war. And I first started to work with the peace community when I was working for an NGO called Peace Brigades International, which is an NGO which provides international accompaniment to human rights defenders at risk in conflict zones around the world. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's a new toy. I don't use it very often. <laughs> And I, I spent two years living in the region of Urawa in the northwest of Colombia, working with different communities, including the peace community. And just as it should, that experience turned my life upside down. And I decided that in order to make sense of what I had lived through those two years, I had to retrain as an anthropologist. So after having done my, my, bas my BA and my first master's degree in literature, um, and then gone off to work in human rights, I decided to go back to the National University of Colombia in Bogota and do a two years research degree in anthropology. And my research for those two years was with the peace community. And one of the things that drove my research was that I felt that despite the fact that this is a community that is perhaps even more famous internationally than it is within Colombia, um, for this pioneering position of neutrality, which has of course captured the attention of human rights practitioners and scholars, I felt that there was constantly something missing in the representations I was feeling and seeing of the peace community as a human rights practitioner. I saw that all of the engagements from both grey literature and academia were focused on what the leaders said publicly, uh, what their political discourse was. They were focused on this idea of neutrality, they were focused on things to do with non-violence as a practice of civil resistance. Um, and they were all kind of looking at this peace community as what it was valuable for as a case study. And I felt that there was something more, something that was of their own value. Um, and I was particularly constantly drawn to their production of organic cacao. And I didn't quite know why, um, but I found why. Uh, when I first came across Gauteng's concepts of negative and positive peace about halfway through my first year. And I discovered that these concepts were absolutely perfect for me to be able to frame the change in gaze that I was proposing, that I was arguing was so important. 
because I thought that actually the human rights lens, which has habitually been used to analyze this community, frames the peace community in terms of their human rights defense. They are framed as defenders. They are represented as defenders and always in terms of their calls for negative peace. That is, their demands to the international community and to the Colombian state that the violations should cease. Their demands that there be an end to the impunity and their demands that the civilian population in the midst of the conflict be respected. But my interest in their organic production, uh, meanwhile, reframed them as creators, as producers, as people who were making chocolate, but also making community um, in a very profound way, which I thought was much more in the lines of the gaze that we are encouraged to use when we think about positive peace. So that was the um, kind of revelation uh, in my engagement with Gauting's terms that helped me to find the words for what I was trying instinctively to do. Um, there we go. And this was the result uh, of the two-year uh, project. This book is coming out um, later this year by Palgrave. And as an anthropologist, what I was concerned with doing was to see a community that had been so glorified by the human rights community but also so condemned from within the right in Colombia and so stigmatized because of their position of neutrality. I thought, actually, anthropology, what we do best is try to understand a social group in their own terms without either glorifying or condemning them. And so what I focused on was their narratives. Um, and I promise this is not going to be a talk with much anthropological theory, but just briefly, I understand the production of narratives as cultural embodied historically formed practice um, which members of the community engage in constantly every day alongside their other cultural embodied historically formed practices such as farming organic cacao and all of these practices together are what constitute and make up and are incredibly important for the production of and maintenance of a collective identity the book has three sections um, Origins, in which I discuss how this community emerges in a very particular historical conjuncture. The radical narrative, which corresponds to more or less their political position and their political narrative, their human rights discourse. And the organic narrative, which has to do with their narratives about how they conceive of their relationship to their social and natural environment. So I'm not going to try and summarise everything because that would be trying to fit a huge amount of information into a very small space of time. Um, but I will try and, 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 and mention in brief what each of those sort of sections does. First of all, geographically, um, oh, I thought my point was going to work out well. I can't have everything. Um, the peace community is in the northwest of Colombia. This is Bogota, the capital. The northwest is the region called Loa, um, up, in, up near the Panama border, near an area called the Darien Gap, which incidentally is the one piece of the whole Panamerica Highway which is not joined up. If it wasn't for this small, some, some 50 kilometers here, um, you could drive from the northern tip of Alaska to the southern tip of Chile. A convergence of military, economic, and political factors uh, have meant that this region of Colombia has been one of the epicenters of the conflict in different stages. Um, and the peace community are uh, living in these incredibly beautiful remote mountains um, in this area. So, as I mentioned, the peace community were producers of organic cacao long before they were a peace community. 
And the origins, which um, you're all invited to come and see the film this evening, they will talk more about, uh, that the members of the peace community describe their history in more detail than I'm going to do today. Essentially, the production of cacao has had an inextricable link with the political origins of this community ever since um, they first had a, a membership of a cooperative. And the cooperative was a cacao cooperative called the Balsamar Cooperative, and it was one of the bastions of the left-wing uh, political party, the Patriotic Union's development project in this region. The Patriotic Union Party, unfortunately, with those of you who are familiar with Colombia, will know very well the story um, of 5,000 members of the party assassinated by politicians, uh, paramilitaries, army, drug traffickers, landowners in the late 80s and early 90s. And because of the association with the political party, the cooperative was also uh, obliterated. Um, but the cacao is still there, because as you can see, it's a tree. So in different moments of forced displacement, while the peace community's other crops, such as corn and beans, uh, were either uh, abandoned and were lost because the farmers couldn't attend to their crops from displacement, or they were burned by the army and paramilitaries who saw them as subsistence for the guerrilla, cacao is not a uh, subsistence crop, it is a cash crop. And so it survived, and it grew covered in, in, in weeds, but the farmers were able to um, re uh, restore the crop and begin to have an economic income again. And it was in the wake of the assassinations of the cooperative leaders that the farmers of the peace community decided to declare themselves neutral. Now, this was an idea that was fostered by various different actors um, that came together, including neutral communities from the indigenous communities, including a local bishop, and including a local Colombian NGO. And they all developed this idea together of a way in which communities could stay in conflict areas and not have to lose their land um, by using a very creative interpretation of international humanitarian laws, principle of distinction between combatants and uh, civilian population. And so essentially what they did was create delimited areas. They, they were saying, we are living in this area. This is civilian population only. No armed actors should come inside. And this is kind of like the Red Cross sign on a hospital which designates it as protected population within the Geneva Conventions. And so essentially what the peace community did was say, we are a neutral community. Paramilitaries, if you come in here, you will make us a target for the guerrilla and vice versa. Now, unfortunately, one week after this declaration, on the 23rd of March 1997, a wave of military and paramilitary operations swept these mountains causing the forced displacement of all of the farmers to the little town of San Jose de Apartado. And in that moment, a new process began. Because initially, this idea of a peace community had just been a temporary, short-term, humanitarian and nature protection option. But while they were living in this town, displaced, they started to have to work together in a much more profound way than they had done before. They're not an indigenous community whose identity is by nature a collective identity. They'd had collective uh, projects with the political party, with the cooperative, but they'd been living each one in their own nuclear family. And it was in this experience of being displaced that they started to have to go and work the land together in groups of 50 because it was not safe to them, for them to go alone. And in this experience of working together for protection, they began to evolve into something with a much longer term um, gaze, with a much broader philosophy.
The radical narrative, or what I call the radical narrative, is about how the community interprets the state. And it's an interpretative framework which has been built up over time um, and over a very complex historical genealogy of events, which includes direct victimization, but also a perception of hypocrisy because they go to Bogota and they have meetings with officials who say, oh yes, we'll do this for you, and then ultimately, of course, it doesn't happen. And so they, they, they perceive that they, they are treated one way in Bogota uh, by the government, but then the army in the region that they're in continues to, human, to, to violate that human rights. And this is important because um, while they have been victimized also by the guerrilla, uh, they tend to see themselves much more as victims of the state because it's only been about 20% of the violations that have been carried out by the hands of the FARC. And the peace community are in what they call rupture with the state, which began in 2005. Um, and what this means is it's an ethical repudiation of a system they perceive to be corrupt. They say, okay, we have tried to interact with you, we have tried to obtain justice, we have tried to uh, make reforms, but you are consistently corrupt, so we're going to break off all um, dialogue with all of the states unless we can have, until we have four conditions that are fulfilled. And these four conditions have to do with the frustrations in terms of justice and security that they've had in the past. So they include things like um, a retraction by the president of stigmatizing comments made by previous president, Alfredo Uribe. Um, the relocation of a police station which was put in the middle of their town uh, going against their desire not to have to live with armed actors because having the police there makes them a target uh, of attacks from the guerrilla. Um, and things uh, also to do with having a set of humanitarian zones where they can take refuge in, uh, in the case of armed confrontation. And finally, an evaluation of the justice system's failures to uh, help them overcome impunity. And this has been read by uh, both national and international actors as an excessively radical position. And what I do in my book is go over the whole complex genealogy of how all of these different uh, moments uh, created this script according to which every action of the state is interpreted. So if you have a historically constituted framework of interpretation, then every time the soldiers go through your land and damage some of your crops, it's not just the soldier going through your land and damaging your crops. You're, receiving, you're perceiving it as the soldiers are damaging my crops because there is a unilateral plan from the state to exterminate us as a collective identity. And of course, if we read that out of context, that is extremely uh, radical and, and it's an exaggeration probably of the truth. And, and as an anthropologist, I'm not saying that they're correct, but I'm saying that they need to be understood, uh, their interpretative framework needs to be understood in historical context. Um, one of the horrendous events that happened, which you'll see more about in the film if you come uh, to watch that this evening, is a massacre of eight people, including three children, one of whom was only 18 months old. Um, in 2005, which was the kind of the tipping point when they said, this is the last straw, we're not going to carry on this relationship with the state anymore. The organic narrative, on the other hand, um, is a much more of a cultural praxis narrative, and it's to do with how they perceive their social and natural environment. And at its heart, uh, what I discovered is there is a wonderful analogy between a body with organs and an organized social group. And an inextricable connection between how they imagine their production of organic cacao and their process of community organization. 
and linguistically uh, the two things are utterly linked and, and confused in a very creative way. Um, since 2009, the peace community started a relationship with Lush Cosmetics. Many of you may be familiar with this shop, there's one on Oxford High Street, and um, Lush buys 50 to 100 tonnes per year of fair trade organic certified cacao from the peace community, and they make it into um, this, which is the peace bar, which is a solid massage bar. It's not soap, which I discovered when I tried to use it as one and was rather disappointed by its lathering capacities. Um, but when I discovered that it was a massage bar, I was much more impressed. And Obviously, it's, it's, I'm very aware of the critiques around how fair is fair trade and the commercialization of the whole label of organic. Um, my work is not to evaluate how ethical is lush, but to, to see how the peace community perceive of this commercial relationship. And there are various reasons why they find this a very positive commercial relationship, um, not least because they actually go beyond uh, a commercial partnership and they engage in visibility and awareness raising campaigns. Um, and so the peace community consistently say things like, for us, the economic is not just to get money for our families, it's not just about having a better price, it's, it's also political. We also want people who buy the product to know the story behind it, to know about the peace community, to know what we're engaged in. And so this is this, uh, this duo of the economic and the political, which of course has been driving a lot of my interest. And what I discovered, um, in the, in the narrative of the community is when Lush started working directly with them. The narratives that Lush has is a global company that is thinking about alternative trade and ethical trade in, in ways that we're very familiar with when we go into many kind of fair trade style shops. These narratives at a global level connect with pre-existing local narratives from the days of the Balsamar cooperative which have to do with autonomy, which have to do with getting a better price, which have to do with the political nature of economic solidarity. And so that helps to kind of crystallize this narrative that the community has been building up, um, which I call the organic narrative. And it has various different elements, um, which I won't describe them, but they are food sovereignty, the contrast with the non-organic, and the perceptions that they have about development and capitalism in Colombia, which quite often uh, grassroots communities perceive as, as very corrupt and it's very much linked to a pattern of state terror. Um, these, these perceptions, link in a really interesting way with the radical narrative. So all of these elements are constantly framed in a them-us dichotomy. In a them-us dichotomy which is very much part of the radical narrative, part of the political narrative and how they perceive themselves politically. And the reason my book is called Chocolate and Politics is because this continuum or this change of frame, as I proposed at the beginning, between negative peace and positive peace. This creates this cultural continuum which I call chocolate and politics, and I really believe that you can't understand one without the other. And there was a shift in social movement studies recently to engage ethnographically with social movement studies and to see uh, social movements as having a cultural context, which perhaps was rather lacking in some of the scholarship on social movements uh, previous to that. Um, and I really think that you can't understand the peace community's historical, political demands without looking both historically but also culturally at the context which engenders these narratives, both equally, both coexisting together, chocolate and politics. And you'll, you can see this, this 
closeness of the two um, in the film if you come and watch it this evening. It's called Chocolate of Peace. But I also think that um, relative to this conference, it's interesting to think about the peace community as a, a community that has a perception of peace which is much closer to what we think of as positive peace. Their perceptions of the peace process, um, which is that's a huge topic and we could talk about that if you want, um, they're very sceptical, but that, that's very much influenced by their perception of the state. And their perception of anything from the state is, is they're very cynical to do with it. They have very little trust in the state. And therefore, they have very little trust in the peace process. And for them, the peace community, peace building, is to do with this daily action of farming together, of living together, of uh, building community, of economics, of, of very much of, of a broader sense of, of what peace means. And I want to finish uh, by sharing the trailer of my film with you. Um, but I'll just say before that that the reason I made the film is very different from the reason I wrote the book. The reason I wrote the book is my own academic interpretation of an engagement with the peace community over five years. But the film, although we made it very closely with the peace community and, and we wanted them to be happy with how they were represented in the film, it was made with a very different kind of agenda, with a political peace-building agenda to engage with audiences who perhaps in Colombia hadn't had the opportunity to meet victims before. Because one of the extraordinary things about Colombia is the gap between the rural and the urban. And so you'll find very often that the middle-class societies in the, in the urban areas, they haven't experienced the conflict in the way that the rural communities have. And so they're very much more easily manipulated by I guess what we would call in the context of 2016, fake news. Um, and there's, there's a real kind of um, polarization between the city and the countryside, which of course we have everywhere. I mean, I'm from London and I know that my reality is very, very different from a sheep farmer in Wales. But that difference which exists all over the world is hugely exacerbated by 50 years of conflict and 50 years, more than 50 years of underdevelopment and, and lack of opportunities in the countryside. So my, my, my colleague, my co-director Pablo and, and myself, we made the film in order to do peace education with Colombians who hadn't had the opportunity to meet human rights defenders, peace builders and victims. And this kind of goes a, a little way to addressing the um, discussion that was raised in the previous panel on education to do with how do you engage people empathetically? How do you help people to put themselves in the shoes of the suffering other. And I think film is a really, really powerful, I'd never made a film before, but it, I discovered it's a very, very powerful uh, tool with which to do that. Um, and so we, we, we kind of had three objectives. Um, to help people engage historically, which is why I asked the question on history in the previous panel, because it really is impossible to change people's minds unless you engage them historically. Secondly, to engage with them emotionally. Because if you go and you stand in front of an audience of Colombians, and I've done it, I've stood in front of an audience of Colombians and tried to engage with them by talking about how many victims we have and why there is a point on the Havana Agreement to do with land reform and why is there a point to do with political participation. If you show the film first, if you have people engaging emotionally uh, first, then you can start at a much uh, further level of discussion because People are already connecting emotionally to the issues as to why is there a war and why is there a need to put an end to the suffering of civilian victims. And thirdly and finally, because I do think that the film invites a discussion of what does peace mean in a way that in a country that has 
Um, most people have never experienced a day of quote-unquote peace, not even negative peace, let alone positive peace. The country is only just beginning to think about what does peace mean. And you can go to any number of conferences any, any, in any part of the country today and go to a, some kind of discussion about peace and the peace process. But this discussion as to what does peace mean is really, really um, you know, ongoing in Colombia. And I really think that, that it was a useful tool to invite uh, uh, an engagement with a community that has for 20 years been thinking about what does peace mean. And these are the kinds of uh, figures that Colombian society is not used to look for for inspiration. Um, but we found that it was very useful that we did because they do have values to do with peace that are very much along the lines of positive peace. So I'll leave you with the trailer, which is two minutes long, and I hope I've stuck more or less to my time. Uh, okay.